0: Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with Scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of Scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out UHail.net for a Zoom link and more information. Second reading is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 46. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the Law and the Prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question, What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until i put your enemies under your feet if david thus calls him lord how can he be his son no one was able to give him an answer nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions this is the word of god
1: i feel like today's reading is kind of a a weird one from the lectionary you know the first half seems so familiar to some of us that I think we're probably at risk of glossing over it, right? Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we've heard all that before. What else you got for us, Jesus? You know, preachers both love and hate passages like this. Like, it should just sort of preach itself, but what on earth am I gonna say that hasn't been said a million times before? And then the second half reminds me of listening to my kids talk about video games or increasingly teenagers talking about anything. Like, I recognize all of the words, just not the order that they appear in. Like, I don't understand what's going on here. Jesus and the Pharisees are, are like, passionate about this weird scriptural detail from Psalm 110 in a way that I'm just not. (laughs) Like, this seems super nerdy. And I'm not totally sure what to do with it, but maybe we can wrestle a blessing out of it. And on top of which, I've been in a fog of... uh, cold medication for a week, so we better pray about this <laughs> uh, before we get started. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, you call us to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. You call us to love our neighbor as, yourself, as ourselves. Uh, we pray that this morning your love would be kindled in us, that love that is divine, that love that excels all other loves. Help us to hear your word well this morning that we might know you better and make you better known in this world. Bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds that they might be acceptable in your sight. We ask in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been kind of in the thick of a bunch of conversations between Jesus and the religious and political leaders of Jerusalem. Uh, His presence has been wreaking havoc for the keepers of the way things are ever since he rode in on a donkey with crowds hailing him as as the Messiah, the new king, the king after God's own heart. And this is a problem because he seems to embody a rather different kind of king, a very different kind of kingdom than they or we are used to, which means that the way things are is at odds with God's heart. And so group after group, that is benefiting from the current order of things comes to Jesus to test him. And I think one thing that's important to kind of name is that the motivations of these tests could be entirely mixed. Some of these leaders might actually be willing to get behind Jesus. They, They know God's kingdom is more than what's currently on offer, but it's gonna be risky. Rome does not like political unrest. Caesar is not going to be satisfied with a competing king. And everyone in Jerusalem is keenly aware that Rome's only response to this sort of thing is going to be violence. So they better be sure. And of course, some of these tests may be born of envy or fear or bitterness or anger at the unnerving possibility that how they are running things is not how God would have them. And I think we're just as prone to testing Jesus in both ways. You know, the first can be healthy. I I think that the disciples do it all through the Gospels. They're regularly pushing the boundaries of this new reality that Jesus claims to embody. They're often asking him questions like, like how many times should I forgive someone? Or can we call down fire on our enemies from heaven? And for the record, you should forgive right relentlessly, and you're never allowed to call down fire on your enemies. I think we could imagine that the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most comprehensive teaching in Matthew's Gospel, is rooted in these kinds of questions, right? How how should we be in the world? How far can God's grace stretch? What does Jesus think it means to be fully alive? What's his vision of the kingdom of heaven? These are good questions. Jesus invites us to follow him with absolute trust, but not blindly. He wants our hearts and our souls and our minds fully engaged. Our whole lives alert. And as we learn to trust Him, as we risk trusting that His way really is the way that leads to life, we discover that He's worthy of it. Because His way is the way of love from beginning to end. I think the world would be a very different place if, we, if everyone who claimed the name of Jesus seriously put His teaching to the test. <laughs> Of course, we're also prone to testing or more challenging him in the second, more self-centered way. Right? We have a habit of acknowledging that his teaching is really sound, <clears throat> sounds really nice in an ideal world, but we don't live in an ideal world, do we? And we have to get through it somehow. We can't just go loving and forgiving everyone. We can't go around being radically generous and unflinchingly humble all the time. Right? We'll never move up in the world that way. Sure, Jesus tells us that we need to become like children in order to have any idea what the kingdom of heaven is like, but we've put a lot of effort into growing up, right? into establishing ourselves, making something of our lives. Why should we risk that, Jesus? You know, all this is to say that when the Pharisees come to Jesus to test him, let's not assume that they're invariably hostile, or that we are any less prone to rubbing up against the grain of his teaching. Admittedly, there seems to be a kind of edge to this conversation, but something is going to make, or if someone is going to make messianic claims, then they should be tested. So finally, after a bunch of these tests, they get to the heart of things, to the real test. What's the greatest commandment? What's the heart of God? What matters above all else to the God who brought us out of slavery in Egypt? who would shape us as his people and whose kingdom we're waiting for. And I don't I don't think Jesus' answer is particularly revolutionary. I mean, it's possible that anyone who is as familiar with the Hebrew scriptures would have said much the same thing. It's a mashup of Leviticus 18 or 19 verse 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. And yet yet we can't move past it too quickly. Right? This is what keeps us from giving attention to things that don't matter when we're called to give attention to things that matter cosmically. And one of Jesus' most consistent criticisms of the religious leaders of his time is that they had this habit of paying attention to the things that make them look very religious but don't make them very loving. Things that are, seem to be very godly but are far from God's heart. I'm sure he'd have similar things to say to the church in our time and place, I I think we would do well to cultivate a deeper and deeper sense of wonder, of delight in the fact that Jesus insists that this is how to attend to things that really matter. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs on that. You don't have to do anything else. Just let love, this self-giving, creative, perfect love in which and for which we're made, have its way in every corner of your life, which is, of course, <laughs> much easier to say than to do, right? We have all sorts of protections against that. We have all sorts of rationalizations about why it won't really work. You know, again, it's a great idea in the real world, but we live in a world of mass shootings and missing children, of wars and rumors of wars, of a world that seems to be on the verge of collapse in one way or another. All the time, we we live in a world in which the people in power show no evidence that they mean to act in love because they're manically committed to power. <laughs> and we also live in a world, at least here in the West, uh, where we have everything that we could ever want, or at least we could have everything that we could ever want if we play our cards right. We're the richest, most educated, <laughs> most technologically advanced, most comfortable, most privileged people in history. And at the same time, study after study shows that we are collectively the most unhappy, depressed, and anxious people in history. I think part of the reason that anyone under the age of thirty, whom I spend a lot of time around, is more than likely to see things through the lens of mental health, is because they know that the world as it is is driving us crazy. And so, on one hand, I think I have to believe that our our resistance, either implicit or explicit, the kind of reckless love that Jesus is calling us to is partly due to the fact that we've managed, like on the whole, to set ourselves up pretty good. The current, or- current order of things isn't too bad from where we're sitting. We can always turn off the news if it turns out to be too much, which is sometimes the right thing to do, I think. And I think that our resistance is partly due to the fact that it would just plain be hard. It would be disruptive. It would cost us. Jesus never suggests otherwise. He's pretty clear that what we get back would be extravagantly more than anything we'd ever give up. But there's no question that there will be labor pains as new life is birthed. As he says, the seed needs to fall to the ground and die in order for there to be fruit. And, and you know, we're not always resistant. It's not as bad as all that. Some, sometimes we do manage to love God and neighbor well and faithfully. But my guess is, if you're anything like me, if we do an inventory of our lives, we probably find a few places where our commitments are something less than loving God and what God loves with everything we've got. Does that seem fair? <laughs> Maybe you're better people than me, I don't know. But what if we gave it a shot? What what would that be like? And to help us think about that, I want to bring in our psalm for today, Psalm 1. I love that the prayer book of the Bible starts like this. Happy are those, or blessed are those, the the translation we read said. Happy are those who don't follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law they meditate day and night. Happy, or blessed are those who are just a little bit obsessed with the love of God and the things God loves. Happy are those who spend their energy figuring out what it means to love God, ourselves, our neighbors, human and otherwise, with everything we've got. Happy are those who are going with the grain of the universe. You know, happiness or a hashtag blessed life is what we're often sold in just about every advertisement, political speech, speech, motivational seminar and social media influencer post. But it never seems to quite pan out, right? It just seems to sort of stress us out more. Now, correlation is not causation, but there is an undeniable spike in mental health crises, particularly among teenage girls, beginning in 2007. You know what happened in 2007? (laughs) No? Nobody knows? iPhone came out, right? It's something about having everything that should make us happy in our pockets doesn't. And I don't want to suggest that if we just get our religion right, all our mental health challenges will be dealt with. My, you know, Anti-anxiety meds and therapy have changed my life. But I also think that many of us who don't have a diagnosable mental health issue are feeling the weight of the world these days in unhealthy ways. Right? There's, a, there's a pall of uncertainty, of fear, of, of sadness that seems to hang over so many of our days. Kate was telling me the other day that she, she walked into On, and if you've ever been to Savon, like most grocery stores, uh, the, the floral section is the first thing you walk into. And, and she said her first thought was that the Gerberas were too cheerful for the current order of things. <laughs> the Gerberas were too cheerful. Doesn't that say it all? I think a lot of us feel that. I don't think that either Jesus or the Psalmist is encouraging like the power of positive thinking or anything. This is not about escapism. It's not about burying our heads in a Bible or cutting ourselves off from this degenerate world. It's not about being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And in fact, it's just the opposite. You know, to state the obvious, and I think this is why Jesus links these two commands, is that we can't love our neighbors in abstract. God can feel a little abstract, but our neighbors, you can't love them in abstract. That's an embodied thing. Not, not this kind of love, anyways. This is, this is agape love in Greek. Agape love, which is more than fleeting feelings. It has precious little to do with our desires uh, or our state of mind or the likability of the neighbor in question. Agape love is intentional, full self-choice to participate in the, in the wholeness that, and healing that God wants to work here and now, in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in this broken and beloved world. This is not about escapism, it's about fruitfulness. Listen again to Psalm 1. Happy are those who are just a bit obsessed with loving God and neighbor. That's my translation. <laughs> they chew on that day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, yielding their fruit and season, their leaves never wither. Everything they do, they prosper. They are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in season. Their leaves never wither, and all they do, they prosper. I mean, come on. (laughs) Doesn't that sound good? A quick note, this is not about prosperity in the way that we tend to think about it. As one pastor puts it, Jesus will give you everything you want, but first he's going to change your wanter. (laughs) When we draw close to Jesus, we want the things that he wants because what he wants is good. When we risk loving God and neighbor with everything we've got, not to get something out of it, but just because it's what we're made for, it turns out that we want more of that. We are made for more of that. It's true, sometimes the Gerberas are too cheerful for the current situation. And the church is weakened when we forget how to lament. You do not have to be okay to be here. And if our hearts don't break for the things that break the heart of God, then we aren't really loving God with our whole hearts, are we? But when we allow our lives to be caught up in God's love and loving the things that God loves, this beautiful and broken world, we grow to understand that our lives are not rooted in a world coming apart at the seams but in the extravagant goodness of the one who's making all things new, even us, even now. That's a wildly freeing thing to know. I think it's why Paul prays in the middle of his letter to the Ephesians that the church would know the full height and depth and length and width of the love of God in Christ, that they would be rooted and grounded in it. Because then we will know that the love of God is sufficient to hold all of the brokenness and all of the beauty, both in and around us. And that knowledge orients us to a different end to a world made new, not destroyed, to God with us, not against us, to a kingdom whose gates are never shut because everything that would be a threat to life has been wiped out. Every tear will be wiped away, every hungry belly filled. I think to to touch on the second half of the reading just very briefly, maybe this is why Jesus insists that there is a king even greater than the king, greatest king we've ever known. Right, right, King David, who for all his flaws was the one whose reign was the most successful, glorious, and godly in the history of Israel, which says something about the kings, but <clears throat> uh, he, he was also the one on whom God had pinned the promise of the Messiah. The Messiah was to be the son of David, right? He was the one who'd who pinned this promise of a king after God's own heart, a true king, who would establish God's reign on earth as in heaven. And so it is perfectly reasonable that folks were looking for a David 2.0, right? But what Jesus seems to be saying is that the Messiah, the bringer of God's kingdom, is not gonna simply be a new and improved King David, Because the Messiah predates David, which is weird, I know. But he's the Word who was with God and was God, through whom all things and for whom all things were made, as St. John puts it. So we're going to need a bigger imagination for what it means to participate in the future that God is shaping. It won't look like the kingdoms and rulers that we're used to. One of the oldest hymns of the church is found in the middle of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul says this, he says, let your minds be like Christ. Let your minds be conformed to the love of God embodied. Let your minds be like Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, instead emptied himself. Emptied himself in love, taking on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient, which means he, he trusted the one whom he loves right to the end, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says. Therefore, therefore, not because of his strength, but because of his weakness, not because he clung to power, but because he loved relentlessly. Therefore, not because death has any power, but because with God, death is never the end. And here's how we know it. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father for. Now the church has been singing that or something like it since the very beginning. It's the best news that we've got. The best news that we've got is that how Jesus is, is how God is. And that in Him, in His life, His death, His resurrection, we catch a glimpse of the promise that God will get the world God wants. It's this weird upside-down kingdom of love that will make the whole creation sing. And we get to trust with everything that we've got in the promise that there will come a day when, as our opening hymn puts it, we will cast our crowns before the one who is worthy of it all in wonder, love, and praise. We lost in wonder, love, and praise. That is the future that's drawing us towards itself, the future that shapes the present. Maybe so.